I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This afternoon, um, the Lord laid on my heart to, uh, to teach a, a message tonight entitled Overcoming Fear. This is uh, certainly something that applies to the area of healing, but it will apply to any other area uh, where the, the enemy is trying to keep you from uh, taking hold of the blessings of God and anything that God has provided for us through the work of Jesus. But specifically, we'll tailor it um, uh, toward the area of healing just because this is healing school. Second Timothy chapter 1, please notice verse 7. It says, For God, here's Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy is his son in the faith. In other words, Timothy was a convert of Paul's, and he was a partner with him in ministry, a much younger man. And uh, as a result, Paul kind of took him under his wing and uh, uh, spent many years with him off and on in different, uh, different capacities and uh, launched him out into his own ministry, launched Timothy out into his own ministry. And Paul's writing to Timothy a personal letter. and says in verse 7, For God has not given us the spirit of fear. Please notice fear is a spirit. First thing you need to know about fear is that fear is a spirit. It's not a thing. It's a personality. Let me say that again. Fear is not a thing. Fear is a personality. In other words, it's a specific work of the devil. It's a specific operation of the devil to keep you from taking advantage of what Jesus has provided for you. Don't get, don't ever allow yourself to think that fear is an inanimate object. Fear is not something that you resist like you would resist a paperweight. You don't just shove it out of the way and be done with it. Fear is something that's going to come time and time and time again. So we need to know how to deal with fear so that we can uh, be effective in resisting it whenever it comes. Now, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points as we are. Now, does that mean Jesus ever feared? It means Jesus was tempted with the spirit of fear, just like you and I are. doesn't mean that he took a hold of it. doesn't mean that he allowed it to work in him, but it means he was faced with it, just like you're faced with it, just like I'm faced with it. And very often the... Um, well, I may be getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but most often in my experience in dealing with other people and in my own personal experience, I've found that fear is designed to stop you from taking action. How many of you ever heard the, the phrase paralyzed by fear? Well, that's not a spiritual phrase. That's not a Bible phrase. That's a worldly phrase. Even the world has figured out that fear can get so severe that it stops you in your tracks. Now, folks, that's what you need to understand. Notice it says, we'll finish verse 7. It says, Wherefore, God has not given us, or for God has not given us, the spirit of fear, but he gave us something else instead. Fear is never from God. Fear is never from God. Now, the Holy Ghost may give you stop signs along the way. The Holy Ghost may give you impressions about something not to do. You may know. For example, there's a... Um, Brother Hagin used to tell the story about a, a pastor friend of his that uh, that was uh, he pastored somewhere in uh, South Texas and and uh, he and his wife had uh, left to go on vacation and uh, they were driving somewhere and they they weren't 15 minutes 20 minutes maybe away from the house and they topped the hill on the uh, the road they were driving on this was many years ago before they had interstates or anything they topped the hill on the little the little road they were driving on and there was a wreck up ahead and the cars were piled back upon one another so that they didn't have time to stop and they piled into that pile of cars and there were cars behind them that piled in on top of them and as a result, he had some very serious injuries and, and, uh, and breaks and legs broken and hips broken, pelvis broken, different things like that. But his wife was almost killed. I mean, she was critical and uh, critically injured. And except, Brother Hagin said, except the Lord had intervened, she would have died there on the spot. 
Well, he's a faith preacher. And so it created quite a stir. Why would God let this happen? And it bugged him for years. He never got an answer for it. He never could figure out, now, Lord, why did you let this happen? There was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of hospital bills and things like that, lawsuits and insurance companies involved and, and stuff. And you take those numbers back then and multiply them by 10, you might have a, a representation of what things would be like today. But he said it bothered him for years. But Brother Hagin was holding a meeting in his, uh, in his church uh, many years later, and he was talking about the leading of the Holy Ghost. He was talking about the impression of the Holy Spirit. And he said, uh, he said that he said something, and afterwards the pastor came to him and he said, Brother Hagen, he said, I can't tell you what you did for me today. Just a morning meeting, just a few people there in, in church on uh, weekday morning. He said, but I can't tell you what you've done for me today. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, all this time I've been wondering, was this the devil that did this to me or was there, was God in it? You know, why, why did God let this happen? You know, did I, is there some sin in my life that opened the door to this? Was, what happened? And you know how people get all twisted up when tragedy happens or events take place and they don't have an answer for it. That's why it's so important to know what the Bible says for answers. Because the devil will beat you up on what you don't know. Amen. Thank you for your, your response there. That was better than you gave me an amen for. The devil will beat you up about what you don't know. That's why the Bible gives you things to know. Not guess at, not assume, but to know. Jesus said, you know the truth, and the truth has set you free, if you continued in his word. So anyway, he said, well, what did I say, brother? And he said, well, he said, you were talking about that inward witness. He said, you were talking about how the Holy Ghost would just very simply lead you, and sometimes there'd be a voice, sometimes there'd be an impression or whatever. He said, the morning that we were leaving to go to this this vacation, and of course, Brother Hagin knew the whole story. Everybody knew the whole story. Everybody in in surrounding areas knew the story. It was was talked about uh, far and wide about what had happened to this preacher and why it happened and so forth. Everybody had an idea and everybody had an opinion on it. He said, the morning that we were getting ready, he said, I was packing up the the bags in the car. He said, my wife was putting on her last touches on her makeup. He said, you know, it takes wives longer to get ready than it does husbands. He said, so I'm waiting, you know, impatient, tapping my foot. He said, I've got a schedule to keep. I'm I'm got it all figured out. We can drive so far this one day and so far the next day and we can get to where we're going and all this kind of stuff. He said, as I was putting the last bag in the car, waiting for her to give me her overnight kit that had all of her makeup in, in it and, and so forth. He said, as I was putting that last bag in the car, I was out there by myself waiting for my wife. She's still inside the bathroom. He said, there was something on the inside of me that said, wait 10 minutes. He said, I thought, oh, I'm not going to wait 10 minutes. We need to go. He said, but it said it to me the second time. Wait 10 minutes before you leave. Brother, uh, he said, told Brother Hagen, he said, if I had listened to it, he said, now I can see that that was the Holy Ghost. He said, if I had waited that 10 minutes, he said, there would have been time for the police to get there and block the traffic and slow everybody down. He said, I could have avoided the whole thing. He said, all these years, I've been wondering whether God was in it or if God was trying to teach me something or if I missed it, made some kind of mistake or some sin in my life. I've been wondering all these other kinds of things. And if I just learned to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, I could have avoided the whole deal. God was trying to save me from the problem. And it's the fact that I didn't listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit that got me in the mess. I wonder how many people are going to get to heaven that have been blaming God all the time for tragedy here on the earth and realize the Holy Ghost was trying to stop them, trying to keep them out of the tragedy all along. Anytime some famous person gets in some uh, car accident or dies in a plane crash or something like that, you always hear the Christian community come out. Well, I guess God had some purpose. I'll bet you dollars to donuts. 
that when we get to heaven, you'll find out every one of those people had an inward impression by the Holy Ghost to wait or to do something that would have avoided the tragedy. I'll guarantee it. I know it by just knowing how God works and knowing his character and his nature. Here's Paul speaking to Timothy, and he said, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, here's what I want you to see. Power, love, and soundness of mind will overcome fear. And the reason why so much of the church is paralyzed by fear is because they don't know their power. In some cases, they may not be walking in love. Or they don't have the soundness of mind. We could call that the renewed mind to the word, right thinking in line with the word to know what's going on. And so they let fear overtake them. Now, let's take this in context. We could pull this verse out of Scripture and say, yeah, thank God we don't have the spirit of fear. We've got power, love, and a sound mind. Woo-hoo! But Paul wrote this to somebody for a reason. Notice the preceding verse. Paul is writing to Timothy, somebody that knows a lot about his personal life, and he says, wherefore, because of your mother and her faith and your grandmother and all those kind of stuff, I'm persuaded that there's their, their faith is a part of your makeup too. Verse 6, wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of hands, my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Why does Paul write to Timothy and say God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but instead you've got the power, the love of God, and soundness of mind to be able to overcome whatever's going on? Why does he write that to him? Because apparently Timothy is too afraid to step out in what God has given him. Why else tell him to stir up the gift of God? Why else remind him of the things that God has put in him, the things, the spiritual deposits that Timothy has, and encourage him, to quit letting fear hold him back. In other words, this is a great example of how fear is designed to paralyze somebody to keep them from stepping into what God has for their life. Now, folks, that's true not where not only where ministry is concerned, it's true where every aspect of the blessings of God are concerned. The spirit of fear will come to try to stop you from taking hold of the blessing of healing in your life. The spirit of fear will try to paralyze you, stop you, to keep you from taking hold of the blessings of financial provision that Jesus paid the price for as well. He'll try to stop you from anything and everything that belongs to us in Christ. How? One way, and that's the spirit of fear. Now, what's the way that that works? Turn back with me to Romans chapter 8 and also turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Let me show you two other things that Paul wrote. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and here's one reason I believe that. He says the same thing to the Hebrews that he said to the Romans. Romans chapter 8. We'll start reading in verse 14. Paul said, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So what's his topic? His topic is being led by the Spirit of God. Right? He's going to tell him something. He's going to tell the church something about being led by the Spirit of God. Else why would he say that? He says every child of God has a right to be led by the Holy Ghost. Every child of God should be led by the Holy Ghost. You should live your life being led by the Holy Ghost. Now notice the context that he speaks it in. We see in verse 16, here's how the Holy Spirit leads us. The Spirit himself bears witness by his Spirit within us. So every child of God should can be and should be led by the Holy Ghost through the inward witness. That's the same thing that pastor was talking about that he had no clue. Now here he's been pastoring for years had no clue about the inward witness of the Holy Ghost. If he had only known to listen to that inward witness, could have saved him many, many years of tragedy and, and financial difficulty and, and all the other things that were associated with it. The medical issues and, and aches and pains that were a result of it and lingering things that, that 
were still there and, and whatever else was involved. If he'd only known to listen to the Holy Ghost. Now notice right between verse 14 that says you've got a right to be led by the Holy Ghost and verse 16 that tells you how to be led by the Holy, Holy Ghost. Notice what Paul says. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For, verse 15, for, because you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption. Now, we think of adoption in a Western mentality where you bring somebody into your family. That's not what the word adoption means here. Adoption means adult sonship. In the Eastern world, those people adopted their own children. It was a coming out. It was a, it was the closest thing that we can associate with it is, is uh, what little bit of information we have about the Jewish bar, mitz, bar mitzvah. It's where the son becomes a man. He enters into his teenage years and he's considered to be a man. He has all the rights and privileges of a full grown adult. He has all the responsibilities in the family of a full grown adult. He is adopted into his family or recognized as now being an adult. He's not a kid anymore. That's just along for the ride. Now he's an equal partner. With his parents in the family business, in the family activities and so forth. That's what adoption means here. For you have not received again the spirit of bondage to fear. But we have received the spirit of adoption. God has adopted us or brought us into his family as adult sons with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of a full grown Christian. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, what's he saying? He's saying fear puts you in bondage. Well, if we put these scriptures together, 1 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. If fear is a spirit, then what is that spirit of fear designed to do? It's designed to entrap you. It's designed to enslave you. It's designed to put some kind of chains about you to hinder you, to stop you. It's designed to paralyze you. Look with me over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's start reading in uh, verse 14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, same flesh and blood, that through death, talking about his death on the cross, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. And deliver them. Two purposes. One is to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And secondly, to deliver them. That means us, mankind, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now the death he's talking about here is not physical death. The death he's talking about is the fear that comes along with or that accompanies spiritual death. What's the first thing that happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? Their eyes were opened. They saw they were naked and they were ashamed. What did they do? They they hid themselves. When God looked for them, he called out, said, Adam, where are you? He said, we're over here in the bushes. He said, what are you doing in the bushes? He said, well, we're naked. He said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Now, folks, did God not know? What, was he out to lunch when all this happened? Taking a nap? Come on, God knew. He's getting Adam to own up to what he did. It's a real important part of repentance, folks, is to own up and face and admit what you've done. He said, we did this wrong, but we said we were, uh, Adam said this. He said, I'm over here hiding in the bushes because I'm afraid. I know I'm naked and I was afraid. Well, what caused him to be afraid? 
spiritual death. Fear is always attached to spiritual death, folks. So those that are, you know this as well as I do, people that are unsaved, they're living their lives in fear. They may put on a false front, put on a good face, but they're, they're afraid. They're afraid of everything. Who in the world presently, this present day world, this present day situation we're, we're in, who is it that are wringing their hands? People that don't know God. Because what in the world are people that don't know God going to do as things get worse and worse and worse? How do you live in this present day world without knowing God? You're going from one fear to the next. Who knows whether your job's going to go down the tubes next? What are the Christian to the believer? Well, okay, I sure hope I don't lose my job, but if I do, God's still the same. I believe to keep my job, but you can't necessarily believe to keep a job that an unsaved person operating according to the, uh, the, 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 the ways of the world. What if their business goes down? They don't have any protections just because you work for them. Well, what happens if you do lose your job? What happens if that business goes out of business? That company goes out of business. What happens? Well, they go down the tubes. What happens to you? God provides. I don't know what people do in this present world without God. It's hard enough to live today with him. But do you see the point? They were subject to death all their lifetime. How? Through fear. That fear brought them into bondage. That's what Paul is telling us. The Holy Ghost is saying again and again and again. Fear has one and only one purpose, and that is to stop you from acting. To bind you. To put you in, in some kind of prison, whether it's a, a, a physical prison where sickness is concerned, whether it's a financial prison where poverty is concerned, whether it's some kind of prison of despair, which means the absence of peace, the lack of peace, or some other type is designed to put you in prison so that you can't get out, so that it can trap you to keep you from taking action. Now, folks, let me show you how this works. Let's bring it back around to healing. Turn with me back to Mark chapter 5. Let me show you how, what Jesus said in dealing with the subject of fear. Mark chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 22. It said, And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, whose name was Jairus. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. Now, folks, can you put yourself in this guy's position? If this was your daughter, she's at the point of death. Jesus is his last hope. She's going to die if Jesus doesn't do something. And so he implores Jesus. He says, come to my house where she is and lay hands on her so that she'll live and not die. He's got to have faith in Jesus where healing is concerned or else he wouldn't have come to him. Right? So this is faith in action. He acts on his faith. He believes Jesus is the answer. He goes to Jesus. Now all he's got to do is get him to his house so his daughter can get her healing and deliverance from this condition. Whatever it is. And the Bible doesn't tell us what it is. It just says she was at the point of death. So, verse 25. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse when she heard of Jesus came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said... Here's her faith in action. Faith is always identified by someone's words and actions. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? 
And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Can I ask you a question? How long does this story take? This is a a wonderful example of healing. Maybe the best example of faith in action of any of the other examples of healing we have throughout the Gospels. She heard of Jesus. She believed in her heart what she heard. She must have heard something about Jesus' healing through physical touch because that's what she acted on. She heard of Jesus. She believed in what she heard. She believed Jesus was the healer. She began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. And then she acted on it. The perfect example of faith and how faith works. Perfect example. But can I submit to you that there's one guy in this crowd that is not so happy about what's happening to her? And that's Jairus. Because this is taking time. And time is his issue because his daughter is at the point of death. What would you be doing? Jesus is on his way to your house. You're thinking, oh, praise God, this is it. This is all I had to do is get him to come. And you don't even get there and somebody interrupts him. Somebody stops him. He stops and says, who touched me? Jairus is probably thinking, who cares? Come on. That's what I'd be thinking. My first concern would be for my child. I'm not too concerned about the woman with the issue of blood. Let's catch her on the way back. I'm not too interested in somebody else's testimony at this point. Come on. My daughter's at the point of death. Now, folks, we can read this through religious glasses and forget that these are real people. But the real man named Jairus, whose daughter is really at the point of death, cannot be happy about whatever time this is taking. Because if she's already at the point of death, it took him time to go to Jesus, get Jesus, get Jesus to come with him, and then return. This is taking time. And time is something he must not think he has the luxury of spending. At least I wouldn't if I was him. So Jesus said, who touched me? The disciple says, I don't know. Everybody's touching you. The whole crowd's trying to touch you. What do you mean who touched you? Who didn't? But Jesus knew somebody touched him in faith because it drew power out of him. So he stopped and looks around to see who got something. Why is he stopping to see? Because he knows that the power accomplished something, so all he's got to do is figure out who got it. So he's looking around. The woman knows what's happened, so she's probably been left in the dust. She's not still next to him. Probably the crowd moved for a little bit, so she's two or three or four people deep. But she knows that she's the one that got something, so she's got to tell Jesus about it. So she comes. She falls down before him. She's afraid, and she says, Jesus, this is what happened. Well, what did she tell him? She told him the whole story. She told him that she's had this issue of blood for 12 years. She told him about all the doctors she's been to. She told him about all the money she spent going to the doctors. She's told him about every doctor report and about how the doctor says nothing can, can be done. Then she tells him about, but I heard of you. Now, we can clean this up. We can sanitize this to suit our own purposes. But don't you know she's telling him details? I heard about what you did in Capernaum. I heard about that. My friend told me. She goes to the synagogue over here in, in, uh, in uh, Canaan. And and she told me all about it. She was there. She watched it. She told me about it. And I heard that. And I thought, well, okay, if it worked for them, maybe it'll work for me. And so I started saying, she's giving him details. Jesus isn't trying to rush this woman up. You know how women are when they tell stories. She doesn't get to the bottom line. Mark cleaned this up. She's going into detail about this stuff. And rightly so. I mean, she's got something to be happy about. She's not going to be in a rush. She doesn't even know why Jesus in the crowd is moving. She wasn't anywhere close when Jairus came to him. 
She doesn't know what's going on. She just knows what she got. She just knows she's free now for the first time in 12 years. She's got something to be happy about. Folks, this is taking time. And Jairus has got to be antsy. He's got to be thinking, let's go, let's go, let's go. This is great, this is great, I'm glad. But write it down, send him a letter, let's go. I would be. Because there's only one thing that's going to be first and foremost in my mind, in my heart, and that's my daughter. Jesus finally, at the end of the story, Jesus finally says, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. And immediately, something happens. While he yet spake, before Jesus is even finished saying, verse 34, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, that's Jairus' house, certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Now, folks, these things are going to happen real quick from this point forward. Jesus isn't even through telling this woman, Your faith has made you whole. And somebody says, Your daughter's dead. Tells Jairus, Your daughter is dead. How long would it take for you to think, oh, my goodness, or oh, no, or whatever? Would you hear your daughter is dead and stop and think, hmm, well, let's see, how should I, how should I handle this? Of course not. Fear is going to grip you. As soon as the word, maybe even before you heard the words, when you see the people coming from your house, knowing that they were at your house when you left and now they're here, your first thought may be upon looking at them, oh no, what's happened? And then when they say your daughter is dead, fear is going to be right there to grip you. It's the way it works, folks. Designed for one and only one purpose, and that is to paralyze you, to bind you, to stop you from taking action. And Jesus says, notice again, these things are happening fast. The word comes, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the master any further. Verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, as soon as he heard these guys say, your daughter is dead, as soon as he heard that, immediately he said unto Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. What's he saying? He's saying, don't let fear paralyze you. Now let's stop and think about a couple of things he didn't say. He didn't say, now Jairus, I'm sorry, we might have made it there in time, but the woman came and, you know, it's really important that we have this story in the scriptures later on. He didn't say, Jairus, now look, you were believing for healing before, but now she did, she's dead. So that faith for healing stuff, that won't work now. We've got a totally different situation. This is not a matter of her being healed. This is a matter of her being raised from the dead. So you're going to have to believe something totally different. Can you believe for your daughter to be raised from the dead? It aggravates the stew out of me how people, teachers primarily, try to slice and dice the word so much that you lose the power of God. It's like God doesn't know ahead of time what you're going to need. And he says, oh, nope, that's healing faith. That won't work. Raising the dead faith is necessary. Too bad for you. It's like God's trying to not help people rather than trying to help them. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Only believe. He's saying, don't let fear keep you from the faith that you've already exercised. Don't stop Believing. Now what did Jairus say? The only way we got to identify his faith is see what Jairus said. Jairus said, my daughter's at the point of death. Come lay hands on her that she may live and not die. Well, the not dying part's too late, isn't it? Yet Jesus tells him the same faith that he exercised to begin for her to be healed and to live will still work if he doesn't let fear stop him 
He's got one enemy here, and the enemy is not even sickness. The enemy is not even death. He's got one enemy, and that enemy is fear. Jesus said, don't be afraid. What does that mean? Does that mean don't feel fear? Folks, that's impossible. You can't not feel fear. Fear is going to come based on circumstances and experiences that we encounter. Fear is going to be there. The issue is don't let fear dictate your actions. Don't act or not act based on fear. Don't do or not do based on fear. Don't let fear control you. You, the man on the inside, you decide what you're going to do. And what does he tell Jairus to do? Just believe or keep believing. He's already exercised some, one faith. Now he's got to tweak it a little bit because now it's not just a matter of healing. It's his daughter coming back from the dead. So he says, just believe. Don't be afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him save Peter, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but let me make a comment about this. You're going to have a lot easier time believing God in something really serious, something that's, that's really uh, important in your life. You're going to have a lot more greater success in believing God with the fewer people that know it than the greater number of people. The fewer people that know you're really believing God for something important, the better off you're going to be. If somebody can't encourage you in faith, they don't need to know. Because the last thing you need to do when you're fighting a faith battle is try to explain to people that don't know how faith works. Try to explain to them why you're making confessions that contradict the circumstances. Because they will distract you and suck energy that you need to focus on the things that God has said and the things that God has promised. They will focus, they will distract you and, and distract your focus, change your focus, because now you've got to try to take care of them to keep them from thinking you're a nut. If somebody can't be part of the solution, don't share your problem with them. And if the solution is to apply the word, that if they're not skilled enough in the knowledge of the word and having enough experience to know that having somebody there to encourage you in the middle of a fight is important, then you don't need to be telling them. I've seen a lot of good people start off in faith and be talked out of faith because of baby Christians or family members that knew too much. Now, I can't give you chapter and verse for that, but here's a good principle. Jesus shut the crowd down. He said, all right, now all you people go home. Man, I don't want to go home. You're still going? She's dead? I want to see this. That's the problem. You get a lot of spectators that will suck spiritual energy off the, uh, away from you. You don't need spectators when you're fighting a battle. So Jesus sent the crowd away, except Peter, James, and John. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeing the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. Now, you need to understand something, folks. These are not just family members that, that are crying because the little girl is dead. These are professional mourners. This is a, an important man. He's the ruler of the synagogue. So what that means is the Jews would send people out there specifically to weep and wail and moan. The bigger crowd of people making the most noise says this is how important this family is. Sounds kind of morbid, doesn't it? That's how it worked. So Jesus saw the tumult 
And he saw all the people that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come to them, he said unto the crowd, he said unto the whole group, professional mourners as well as some close family associates or somebody that might have really been mourning over this thing. He said, why make you this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. She's only asleep. What are you making all this fuss for? She's only asleep. But they laughed him to scorn. Now, what does that mean? They said, don't you think we know when somebody's dead? Now, put yourself in Jairus' position. Now this has changed. This has not changed from my poor daughter. What are we going to do for her? Now it's changed to the crowd against Jesus. Who do you think you are? We know when somebody's dead versus when they're asleep. If they were asleep, we wouldn't be doing all this stuff. The Jewish leaders wouldn't have sent us out here if she was just asleep. We know when somebody's dead, she's dead. What a blessing that must be to Jairus. Everybody fighting over whether or not she's dead. These are real people, folks. Jairus is a real father. He's a real dad. But when he put them all out, Jesus doesn't argue with them. He sends them away. Now, can I ask you a question? How did Jesus put them out? Did he just open the door and and start directing traffic? Do you think these people that have just said, you don't know what you're talking about, she's really dead, we're here because she's dead, our job is to make noise? Do you really think that they would walk out willingly? Jesus put them out. This idea that so much of the church world and, and, and paint, uh, paint, people that paint pictures of Jesus being this weak, meek, frail little guy that a good wind would knock over. That was not my Jesus. Jesus put these people out. Get out of here. Now. Jesus was a man's man. He grew up carpentering. The word that's used for carpenter here literally means house builder. Where it says Jesus was a carpenter, he was a house builder. People didn't have carpenters and plumbers and different things like that. They had people that built houses. Start to finish. Jesus was a house builder. I love that because he built his church. That's what he's saying when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. What do you know about building, Jesus? I build stuff. He was a strong guy. He was a rough guy. He was gentle. He was kind. But he was all man. I take comfort in that, folks. He's a guy that a guy would have liked. Okay. But when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, Peter, James, and John, and entered in where the damsel was lying, the bed where she was laying dead, in other words. And he took the damsel by the hand and said, Talitha kumai, which being interpreted is, damsel, I say unto you, arise. He didn't scream. He didn't call fire down from heaven. He didn't pray that the heavens would open. He just simply said, damsel. Time to get up. Little girl, time to get up. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with great astonishment. Who? The father, mother, Peter, James, and John. Folks, can I ask you a question? How astonished are we supposed to be when we're believing God? When you flip the light switch on in a room in your house when it's dark, are you astonished when the light comes on? Wow. No, you expect it to happen. 
You know that's how it works. Flip the light switch, the light comes on. You got one of those curly cube bulbs, it may take five or six seconds. But the light comes on. You expect it. You know how it works. These guys are going through the action of faith, but there was no great, yes, I knew it all the time for on anybody's part, even the father. But the point is this. The father kept acting in faith just like he began and didn't let fear control him, and so it brought the victory. Faith does not mean you know everything from the beginning and you've got it all figured out and you're so fully persuaded that nothing can shake you. It means you don't let fear stop you because fear is the enemy of faith. Always. So what was the key to this man's miraculous result? What was the key to this daughter being raised from the dead? He refused to let fear stop him from acting in faith. Doesn't mean he had all the answers. Doesn't mean he had it all figured out. Doesn't mean he was the strongest guy in faith ever. Jesus didn't turn to him and say, oh, Father, great is your faith. Didn't say that. He just didn't let fear stop him from believing God. Jesus was his answer. That's what he held on to. And that brings the victory. We looked in Matthew chapter 14. I won't take the time. We took too much time with this. But in Matthew chapter 14, we looked uh, recently uh, in another service about Jesus walking on the water to the disciples in the middle of the night. You remember the story? Peter challenges Jesus to challenge him. He said, Lord, if it's you, they first think it's a ghost. And Jesus said, no, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's just me. I'm just walking on the water. Normal thing. You know, it's a Thursday. It's the way it happens. So he says, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, okay, come. That's all he says. Come, come, C-O-M-E. I don't know what that is in Hebrew, but in English, it's four letters. Come. Peter steps out of the boat, starts walking on the water to go to Jesus. But when he felt the wind and saw the waves, or felt the waves and saw the wind, however it says it, it says he was afraid. He was afraid because of the circumstances. And beginning to sink, he cried out and said, Lord, help me. Now, what's the only thing? What stopped him from walking on the water? Some people might say, well, fear stopped him. No, fear didn't stop him. He let fear keep him from continuing to act. Folks, it wouldn't matter what he felt. It wouldn't matter what he saw of the winds and the waves or, or how big. It wouldn't matter if a wave swamped him. He's not going under if he keeps doing what Jesus said, which was come. But fear paralyzed him. Fear paralyzed him and he started going under. And folks, that's exactly the way fear works. Fear is designed to stop you from taking action so that you go under. Little by little until eventually you're swamped. Turn with me over to to, uh, Mark chapter 9. Let me show you another example here real quickly. I'm taking way too much time on this, but I hope it's a blessing anyway. Mark chapter 9. Jesus is coming back from the mountain of transfiguration. He's got Peter, James, and John with him again. Man, these three guys saw everything for a reason. And when he came to his disciples, verse 14, when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question you with them? What are you asking my other nine disciples? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. In other words, the scribes weren't the problem in this situation. And one of the, the, the guys answers, he, here's a father, another father. He said, I brought unto thee my son which has a dumb spirit. Here's an evil spirit, or that he assumes is an evil spirit at least, that is keeping his son from speaking. But it does more than that. 
It says, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, the evil spirit tears him, and he foameth, foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. In other words, it seems as this guy has some kind of seizure. Seems that this kid has some kind of seizure. It keeps him from being able to speak, but also it throws him into the water. It throws him into the fire. It's tried to destroy him. I assume that's why he's determined or concluded that this is the presence of an evil spirit. This is not just some sickness. This is something that's trying to destroy this kid's life. You judge for yourself, but that's what I come up with. So he said, I, uh, here's what happens. Here's how this thing affects my son. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out and they could not. They couldn't. That means they tried and failed, right? They couldn't. Didn't say they wouldn't. If they wouldn't, then that means they didn't try. If they couldn't, it means they tried and failed. Now, put yourself in the father's position. You've heard something about Jesus being the healer. That's why you brought your son to him. Come and you come to him and Jesus is away from the group. Well, that's got to be your first disappointment right away. I came to, to bring my son to Jesus. Certainly, one of the disciples speaks up and says, well, Jesus gave us authority over sickness and disease and to cast out devils. We can do it. You don't have to be discouraged because Jesus isn't here. We can do it. So they tried and couldn't do it. Now this guy's got a second disappointment. I was looking for Jesus. He's not here. Now these flunkies tried it and they couldn't do anything. What am I going to do now? Jesus comes walking up. You would think that he would be encouraged. Oh, finally, Jesus. But if the disciples told him that Jesus gave them the same power to cast out devils and to heal sickness and disease and they couldn't do anything, how are you going to think that Jesus can do anything now either? Unless you're assuming that they lied to you. Looks like you're out of luck. Folks, I'm just speaking from a natural standpoint. Don't tell me the Father's not having these thoughts. You would. I would. And all you care about is your son. I spake to your disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And he answered him. Jesus answers him, not the disciples. He answers the Father and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, unto Jesus, brought the son to Jesus. And when he, meaning the the spirit that was in the boy, saw Jesus, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? How long has he been like this? And the father answered, since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now let's stop the story right there. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus answers the man as to the problem why the disciples couldn't, couldn't get him into the results he's looking for. Jesus answers the man, not the disciples. He doesn't turn to the disciples and say, oh, faithless group of people. He turns to the father and says, oh, faithless generation, how long must I suffer you? Bring him unto me. He's identifying the problem was that the father didn't have faith. Now I've got a question for you. If the father didn't have faith, why did he bring him the son to Jesus to begin with? There's only two possible answers. One is he's bringing the, father, bringing the son to Jesus to see if something's going to happen. That's certainly possible. Or he came believing something would happen, but because Jesus wasn't there, he suffered that disappointment. And secondly, because the disciples fa- tried and failed to get him any results, he's lost whatever faith he came with. That's the only two possibilities. Can any of you think of another one? It's got to be one of those two things. 
Now, which one is it? I don't know. But I do know that by the time Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, the guy doesn't have any faith. Let's assume that he came in faith. I kind of lean toward that one. Otherwise, why come? If he comes to Jesus and he had faith, what drove the, what to, uh, sucked the faith out of him? What caused him to lose his faith? Well, there's only two things that have happened. Jesus wasn't there. There's a disappointment. And the disciples tried and failed. There's another disappointment. What would be the condition? What would be the result of the father? What's he thinking? What's he experiencing? What's he, um, I hate to say what's he feeling. I'm not really talking about physical feelings, but I, I would hope that you would know what I mean if I use that term. What condition is the father in by the time he comes to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, have mercy on us and help us? What's his condition? I have to assume that he's going to be natural. He's going to be normal like any other father would be. And he's going to think, oh, my goodness, I don't know if any, anybody's going to be able to help us now. I'm assuming that that's his condition when Jesus says faithless generation, when he calls him a man without faith. I'm assuming that he, because of the disappointment, because of the failure of the disciples, he's allowed that, which would indicate to me that he didn't start off with a great measure of faith to begin with. But now he's lost whatever he had because the circumstances have taken it away from him. In other words, he's allowed the circumstances to dictate what he believes. Can we agree on that? Folks, please understand, that's not an indictment against anybody. We all face that. See, some people will hear things like that and they'll, they'll feel condemned. Well, I just don't have any faith. Well, then get some. Well, well, Pastor Mike, can you pray for me so I get some? No, because that's not how faith comes. Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Folks, anybody can have faith. All you have to do is hear the word. It's not some special gift from God. It's a special choice that you make. I'm going to be a person of faith. Well, what causes faith to come? Hearing the word. Okay, then I'm going to hear the word. Healing is the area where I need faith, so I'm going to hear what the Bible says on healing. Anybody can develop faith. Anybody. There's nobody on the planet that is incapable of developing faith. Nobody. It's a choice. Again, sometimes people hear things and they think, well, you faith preachers, you just think everybody's supposed to be like you. Well, I don't even know what that means, but everybody can have faith. As a matter of fact, if you're saved, the Bible calls you a believer. A believer is one who believes, which means you had to have faith to come into the family of God. It's not some new experience for anybody. It may be a new experience as far as the area of applying faith to healing. But it works the same way as applying faith to salvation. Don't tell me when you got saved you had it all figured out. Oh, I know. Okay, I've heard enough. I understand. Jesus went to the cross. He shed his blood. He was raised from the dead. So now if I just confess him as Lord and believe in my heart, then God comes down makes a new spirit on the inside of me. That happens instantly. He makes me righteous. And that's all I have to do. Give me a break. Nobody understands that. You know how Paul got saved? Paul got saved by talking to a voice in a light. Saying, what would you have me do, Lord? That's it. He can do, once Jesus identified himself, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And then, and then Paul says, 
Saul, his name was Saul then, he said, what would you have me do, Lord? That brought him salvation. He knew it was Jesus. That means he believed, he had to believe Jesus was alive. If Jesus is not alive, he can't be talking to him. And so he says, what would you have me do, Lord? In other words, okay, I'll serve you. I'll accept that you are risen. I'll serve you. That was Paul's salvation experience. How much did he know? Zero. Except that Jesus is alive and knocked him off the animal he's riding. It doesn't take knowing everything about something to exercise faith. It just takes a willingness to do what the Bible says. So this man is without faith. And unless Jesus can do something about that man's faith, he can't get the son any help. Notice Jesus does not stop and talk to the son. We don't know how old this boy is, but he's either of the age where he's still under his father's authority or this evil spirit has such a hold on him that he doesn't have the capacity to believe for himself. So the father is left in the condition, Jesus, if you can do anything, have mercy on us and help us. He doesn't even know if Jesus can anymore. You can't get any lower than this guy is. So what happens when a guy, let's assume that this guy started in faith, but now he's experienced some kind of failure and some kind of disappointment, so now he doesn't even know if God can help him anymore. Can anybody relate to that? Man, I can put both hands and both feet up on that one. I've had lots of situations like that. Abraham had that situation. By the time Abraham is 99 years old, he doesn't even believe that the promise that God said to him would ever come to pass. But you've got to do something about that condition. You've got to pick yourself up out of that condition. Now, in Abraham's case, in Genesis chapter 18, God asked him one simple question. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Folks, that's a real question. You're going to have to answer that about your own situation. Is anything too hard for God? Yeah, but I've just experienced so many disappointments. Yeah, okay, we'll join the club. So have we. So have the rest of us. Yeah, but I've tried and had faith failures. Well, join the club on that one too. We have also. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Well, but I just don't know anymore if God wants it to happen. I just don't know anymore if God will do it. Well, I would challenge you with the question that God asked Abraham. Is anything too hard for God? See, in some people's thinking, in some people's, at least the way they live, there are things that are too hard for God. They've already determined. Yeah, some things are just too tough for God. It's not going to change. It's going to be like this forever. Really? Okay. But realize that that's by your choice, not by God's choice. That's the same condition. That's exactly the position that took place in Mark chapter 6 in, the home, in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. It says Jesus could there in Nazareth could do no mighty work. Doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. He was unable to. The Son of God was unable to do a miracle. Why? Because of their unbelief. They decided, no, you can't do that here. And once somebody decides that it's too hard for God, that God is unable to help them, all the power in the universe that God has access to won't make a difference. So what has Jesus got to do with this man? He's got to change his believing. Right now he's in the place of, I don't know if you can do anything. Jesus answers him, verse 23, and says, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believe. Now, I'm not even going to talk to you about what the original language says on that. Let's just take it at face value from the translation. I, I get criticized sometimes with people saying, Well, you twist the Bible around to say what you want it to say. So let's take it the way it says it. Let's just answer the objection and take it the way it says it. This man says, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe... 
All things are possible to him that believes. So no matter how you want to slice and dice this, whether you want to use the English translation, whether you want to go back to the original Greek, which is Jesus answering in a sarcastic manner, saying, if I can. In other words, Jesus literally says, my power is not in question here. The only thing in question is your faith. What I can do is not an issue. What you will believe for is. But forget that. Let's just take the English translation for verse, verse 23. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. That means this man's, the father's willingness to believe God can overcome his disappointment, can overcome the faith failures that the disciple and he encountered, can overcome everything that's gone on with this, all the time that this boy has been a child, forget all the problems, forget all the heartache, forget all the tri- attempts to destroy the boy. All of that can be nullified if he can believe. Now, can I ask you a question? I'm going to anyway. Does Jesus not know if he can believe? Is Jesus really saying if you have the ability to believe, if you have the capacity, if you have the spiritual wherewithal to believe, and all things are possible to him that he does? Him that believes. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus really questioning? Uh, you know, there are some people that just can't believe. <laughs> you know, who knew? Some people just can't. Maybe you're one of those people. But if you're not one of those, if you really can believe, then all things are possible to him that believes. Folks, that's not what is being said. Jesus knows this guy can. He's literally saying, if you're willing to believe, because everybody has the capacity to believe. Everybody believes something. Even unbelievers believe something. Even people that don't believe healing is for today believe that healing is not for today. Everybody believes something. The only question is, what are you going to believe in? People that don't believe that there's a heaven, people that don't believe there's a hell, they believe something. They believe there's no heaven and they believe there's no hell. They're wrong, but they believe it. People that believe that Jesus is a fictional character, that he never came to the earth, they believe that. They're wrong, but they still believe it. Everybody believes something. Even people that say they're agnostic and atheist, they believe something. Atheists believe there is no God. They still believe. They just believe in the wrong thing. Don't tell me believing is hard. Everybody does it. That's the point that Jesus is making. He's simply saying, if you're willing to believe in my ability, because he just questioned him. He said, if you can do anything, have mercy on us and help us. Jesus says, if you can believe that I was sent here to help you, then all things are possible. Even the things you've been disappointed about, even the things you failed at, all things are possible. Folks, you can never get too low to get a miracle. This story is the absolute proof of that. You can never get too low to get a miracle from God. Yeah, but I've tried and failed. Doesn't matter. If you can believe, all things are possible. Yeah, but I got a prophecy that said God didn't want it for me. I don't care. I've got a whole book of prophecies that says it's yours. If you can believe, all things are possible. You can never get too low to get a miracle from God. But it's up to you, not God. So Jesus says, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. What does the father do? Folks, this, this father identifies that he understands what Jesus is saying. Because the father doesn't say, well, I don't know, Jesus, can I believe? Are you talking about my capacity? No, he doesn't say that. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He realizes Jesus is saying, it's up to you. And so what does he do? 
Instead of allowing fear, now, as a father, I can tell you right now, that same fear that would grip Jairus in Mark chapter 5 would be there to grip this father in John chapter 9. The idea that my son is never going to be any better than this, and one of these days, this thing is going to kill him. He's not at the point of death like Jairus' daughter is, but it's coming. It tries over and over and over again. Sometimes, somewhere along the way, mom or dad are going to slip up and lose sight of the boy, and it's going to happen. And they know it. So he's got the same fear to face as Jairus did. So what does the father do? The father says he faces the fear, he faces the disappointment, he faces the failure, and he says, Lord, I believe. Now, folks, how do we know how to identify faith? The Bible says faith are words spoken from the heart. He's speaking the words. Now, you have to tell me, how much does he believe the words that he's saying? I would submit to you that he probably didn't start in a great level of faith, and he's not at a great level of faith now in verse 24. But it's something to start with. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here's how you recover from a failure. You choose to speak. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. If it's financial, you say, Lord, I believe that you supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If it's healing, you say, Lord, I believe that you took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses and with his stripes I'm healed. Whatever it is, whatever the word says concerning your subject, you say, Lord, I believe. Now, folks, please understand this guy's making a choice. Just like in verse 23, Jesus said, it's your choice. Verse 24, he makes his choice. He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Does Jesus put him down for being at a low level of faith? Does Jesus say, you don't really think that's faith, do you? Help my unbelief? Seriously? Where's that written? No, Jesus doesn't do that. God's there to help you get results. Folks, remember Romans 8, 14 and 15 and 16? He says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. What is the Holy Ghost going to lead you into? Out of bondage and into victory. You have not received again the spirit of ado- uh, the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption, the spirit that brings you into the fullness of adult sonship privileges in the family of God. How? The spirit of God bears witness with our spirits that we're the children of God. That inward witness is there to lead you into victory. The Holy Ghost is your helper. He's there to help you find victory, not to, to, to judge you and look at every little detail of what you're doing to see if it's right or wrong. Any aspect of faith... God grabs a hold of and brings you closer and closer to victory. In this case, Jesus took what the man said. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit and saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter into him no more. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him and he was as one dead. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. As the father, would you be afraid that the guy was dead when everybody thought he was dead? Here's that same thing. Here's fear coming to grip you. To paralyze you. But he didn't act on anything. He didn't say, ah, you killed my son. Just like you faith preachers. He didn't let fear paralyze him. He didn't let disappointment stop him. He didn't let failure stop him. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Now, folks, I would submit to you that verse 25 can't work if the man is still in unbelief. Because the reason it didn't work in the beginning of the story 
Jesus identified was the man was faithless, without faith. By the time we get to verse 25, we see that the man has operated now in faith. He has exercised some faith because now Jesus is able to cast the spirit out of him. Couldn't do that it was if he didn't have faith. So between verse 22 and verse 24, he develops faith. Verse 24, he exercises faith by saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Verse 25 is the result of his step of faith. His son is delivered. Folks, here's the deal. If the devil can't stop you from acting on the word, he can't stop your answer. And so he'll use everything he can. Let me, let me tell you a story as we close. You can close your Bibles. Once you close your Bibles, that means I have to quit. Not really, but I will. Um, some years ago, I'd have to figure out how long it was. It was probably uh, the early 90s, maybe. Let's see. Where was... Uh, yeah, that'd be about right. It would have been about the early 90s, maybe the late 80s, early 90s. The church had been going for three or four or five years, something like that. And um, uh, my mom had uh, contracted cancer. She had uh, been operated on for cancer once before, and it was kind of a thing she didn't tell anybody in the family. My brother knew because he was living there in town with her. She was living in Birmingham at the time. And uh, so he knew, that part of the family knew, but they didn't tell us until after the fact, or really right when it happened. When she went in for surgery, they let me know so that we could believe God with them, but it kind of took me by surprise. I didn't know anything was going on. And so the recovery was kind of difficult, and, and um, uh, she was in a lot of pain. They, they had to, the, the way they had to open her up and so forth, there was just a lot of... Um, aches and pain and, and different, you know, stuff that she had to have painkillers for and so forth. Well, it turned out all right. Everything seemed to be fine. But then a couple of years later, they found it again. Well, this time, instead of talking to that side of the family, she started calling me. She called me in the morning and, and um, uh, I took the phone call. And we still had the office in, uh, in our home at that time. We didn't have a church office to go to. And so, um, uh, so she'd call and, and uh, she told me what was going on and she just cried. Bless her heart. My heart just broke for her. She cried and cried and she says, oh, Mike, they found it again. And, and fear just gripped her. You could just tell fear was just in everything that she was saying. And, and folks, you got to realize there are certain words in the medical community that are designed to instill fear in you. The word cancer is designed to instill fear so that you will do whatever the doctor says you need to do. You need to be aware of that. Now, it doesn't mean the doctor's wrong in what he's telling you to do, but you need to act not based on fear because he's telling you and you're afraid and this is your only hope. You need to stop and identify from the inside what does the Lord want me to do here and then make your decision based on that. Okay? So anyway, you can just tell. Fear just gripped her and she finally just said, you know, I talked to her, started talking to her once a day. Every morning I'd call her and, and uh, talk to her about this and, you know, what are you going to do? And the doctor wanted to go back into surgery and, and uh, this, that, and the other. And so, you know, Mom, what do you do? What do you want to do? What, what do you have in your heart? She, could, she wouldn't have been able to tell if she had a heart at that point in time. She was so afraid. And uh, so I talked to her about it and I said, well, look, let's, uh, let's identify what the best thing to do is here and, and that kind of stuff. And finally, one morning, it's probably a couple of weeks after I started talking to her every morning, a couple of weeks after that, she said, Mike, I'm just so afraid. It, I said, well, mom, what are you afraid of? She said, the operation and the recovery, it just hurts so bad. I just can't handle that kind of pain again. I said, well, okay, mom, I understand that. I, I haven't experienced it myself, but I, I'll take your word for it. I understand that. 
So anyway, I tried to encourage her, tried to share the word with her as I was doing every day and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. And, and some days it would be better than others. She'd take it and she said, yeah, okay. And I'd, I'd always try to keep her on the phone until we had some note of victory at least. I didn't want to, you know, let her get off the phone discouraged or whatever. And uh, so I'm, I'm praying about this thing all the time on my own. You know, Lord, what do I do? I'm halfway across the country. What are, uh, how am I going to help my mom? And, and one morning I woke up. And just before I called her, the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, the problem is not the cancer. The problem is the fear. I thought, well, okay. All right, let's approach it from that standpoint. So I talked to her and and, uh, talked to her. She was having uh, kind of a rough morning and and she was discouraged and she had tried to read the Bible, but she got discouraged and so she quit and so she had crying and some of that kind of stuff. And I'm not putting anybody down. I understand. I mean, things get a hold of you. We all have emotions. Some of you show them more than the rest of us. But everybody has emotions, and it's just the way God made us. And so, uh, so I said, Mom, I said, let me tell you something the Holy Ghost told me this morning. I said, he told me the problem is not the cancer. She stopped. She said, what? I said, he told me the problem was not the cancer. And I, I drug it out for effect. I want to try to get her attention on this. Because uh, so much of what I was saying was just bouncing back at me because she wasn't hearing it because of the way she was feeling. So I said, the Lord told me the problem is not the cancer. Well, that got her attention. She said, what? I said, the Lord told me the problem is not the cancer. She said, well, what's the problem? He, I said, he told me the problem is the fear. Well, she stopped and she said, well, yeah, that's right. I said, I know it's right. I said, you're afraid not because of the cancer. You're afraid because of the operation. She said, yeah, that's right. So we started attacking the fear. We started talking about fear. We started talking about reasons for her not to be afraid. Turn with me. uh, Well, I've already told you to close your Bibles. Let me read to you from Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41 has one of the most outstanding scriptures. This was uh, Lester Summerall's favorite scripture. He said this scripture took him all over the world in ministry. Isaiah 41. It says, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, folks, if you take that apart, that fits every reason that people are afraid. If God is with you, what is there to fear? Yeah, but but the doctor says, I've got cancer. So, if God's on your side and Jesus provided for your healing, what is there to be afraid of cancer? Yeah, but I'm, I'm just so depressed over this. God said that's not a problem. He said there's no reason to be. But he said that even if you are depressed, even if depression is coming against you or fear is coming against you, he's saying I'm your God. That means cancer is not your God. That means sickness is not your God. That means the devil's threats is not your God. God is your God. Yeah, but I just feel so helpless. Well, he said I'll strengthen thee. I just feel so weak. I'll strengthen you. Yeah, but I, I, I just feel so helpless. He said I'll help you. Yeah, but I just feel like I'm going under. He said, that's okay. I'll uphold you with my right hand of righteousness. Folks, there's nothing you can find that that verse of Scripture doesn't cover. There's no emotion. There's nothing associated with fear that that verse of Scripture doesn't cover. He says, even when you feel down, I'll pick you up. Even when you feel helpless. And he said, I'll help you. He said, even when you feel like you're without strength, I'll strengthen you. Yeah, but, 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 but listen, if all those things are true, what do we got to be afraid of? So I started talking to her like that. It took about four days. 
And man, by the fifth day, I'm talking to her, she is on top of the world. Now it's not a matter of, oh no, the doctor's found cancer. Now she's looking for the devil. Seriously, she's looking for the devil. I don't have anything to be afraid of. Cancer, no cancer. Surgery, no surgery. I don't have anything to be afraid of. God's on my side. And she whipped that thing. She didn't have to have the surgery. She whipped that thing. It disappeared. But not because she attacked the sickness, because she dealt with the fear. Folks, fear is designed to paralyze you in the sense of keeping you from acting on the word. As long as she was afraid, as long as you or I are afraid, and that keeps us from being a doer of the word, to believe what God said, and to speak it with our mouth, it will stop us from realizing the blessings of God in our life. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word says over and over and over again, fear not, be not afraid. As a matter of fact, it says it 365 times in the Old and the New Testaments. Lord, we realize that's one fear not for every day. Every day of the year, we can live free from fear because you're on our side. You'll uphold us. You'll strengthen us. You'll help us. You are with us. You never depart. You never leave us. and You never forsake us. You're always there to provide your power because of your great love toward us and to keep us steady to keep us in perfect peace as we keep our minds stayed on you because we trust in you. Thank you, Father, for the peace of God that overcomes every fear, the peace of God that's based on the word, the truth of the word, the truth of victory in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.